Welcome to Executive Tools, Responding to a Crisis, Part 1. This cast answers these questions. What's the executive playbook for responding to a crisis? What's the first thing to do in a crisis? What do I say when asked to communicate in a crisis? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. Executive leadership roles means at times being the face of the organization <laughs> when things are good and <laughs> when things go very wrong. Exactly. Folks need to know what to do. Executives need to know what to do. And uh, we have a simple playbook agenda for how to think about it and what to do when you're the one communicating. Yeah. And I get asked this a lot privately because people know of my experience in Washington. And the, the, the rules are slightly different. You and I were chatting before we started about lines of power being very diffuse, relatively speaking, if you're talking about a political crisis or a personal crisis that has turned into a political crisis, as is often the case in, say, Washington or virtually any other major governmental uh, capital. And corporate stuff is a little bit different. But the fundamental principles have been the same for probably 50 years. Maybe the big thing that catches people is the speed of the news cycle. I talked to somebody the other day, Mike, who did not know of the concept in Washington and also in Paris and, and in London and in Ottawa and so on of the Friday news dump. And I said, well, that's part of the news cycle. And we had a discussion about why news actually came out on Friday that nobody told you about. So one of the things that is the responsibility of leaders when you're an executive and people sometimes think about being executive, but they forget they have this responsibility to be a leader as well, is you may have to be the face of the organization when a crisis hits. And too often, the executives in various places assume the CEO will do it or the COO or, or you know, in some cases, the general counsel as a lawyer. And, and in many cases, if it is a corporate-wide thing, that is usually true. And if you're a CEO, you've got a communication expert on your team. Some of them have 20, frankly, but most of us don't have, have that luxury. And before the corporate lawyers get involved, you may be in a situation with your division or your general manager role or your plant in a community where you're going to be obligated to talk about a crisis. You're going to be questioned about a crisis. Yeah. Now, we're, when you wrote this and the way we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about external communications, but it struck me kind of as I was reading this and preparing for our discussion, that most of it would apply very well, even in an internal crisis to your organization, right? Some, some of the same principles would apply. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you don't, you won't have, nor would you need a team of experts backing you up. You wouldn't need that, but sure. The question is, you know, you always start with what's a crisis. I think right now, there's a common phrase that has entered the lexicon. Certainly people I talk to, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Unfortunately, that's not, that's a relatively cynical, political, and not widely appreciated or respected point of view. That's just, hey, if there's a crisis, you might be able to slip things through when people are looking at the crisis yeah. and not looking at the wheels of government. Yeah, there's a definite negative undertone to that statement. Yeah, whereas crises happen. And you're responsible. And, you know, our friend Michael Swenson once told me, and I was embarrassed, I was probably 35 years old when I learned this for the first time, that the word responsible is a portmanteau. It is a combination of two words, response and able. 
you are able to choose your response. That's what being responsible means. And that's why rights and responsibilities go together, because you shouldn't have a right if you're not able to choose your response your response to certain situations you're put into. The same thing here. You're if you're the responsible party um, for your division, for your group, for a joint venture. If you essentially speak for the CEO or for some division president in some joint venture, for instance, and a crisis happens, you may be expected to talk. And you ought to know what to do. And it's not impossibly hard. And what makes it hard is people think, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Right? So here's the outline. Yeah, yeah. What you do is you just immediately start talking. Just immediately start Yes, folks. That's what you do. No, folks. No, folks. That's not the high D version of this cast. That is, that is <laughs> the million dollar mistake. Absolutely. You know, a, a West Pointer, uh, Alexander Haig, when um, President Reagan was shot, got up the microphone and in a classic military move, and he knew he was Secretary of State and that he wasn't second or third in line, but he said, it's all right, folks. I'm in charge here which is actually a good thing to say in a lot of places, but it wasn't good in the line of succession. And not if you're not actually in charge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Regardless of whether and you're, you're a former four-star general or not. four-star general, right? That's like yeah. the whole like civilian-military relationship. Yeah, and actually the drive to communicate has to be there, but it is absolutely not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is get the facts, all of the facts. Then the second thing you do is get those facts out. And you'll notice I didn't say, we don't say cherry pick the facts and start telling your story. There can be storytelling, but if there are unflattering facts, you want to be the one to share those. The third thing you do is take responsibility. You say that you're taking responsibility. Then you tell people, hey, the, the right thing to do in this situation or what should have happened is X. And then say, we didn't do that. You know, we're supposed to set an example. And in this case, it would have been doing the right thing and we didn't do that. And then you apologize, which surprises people a great deal. But all crisis communications that include apologies are seen to be much more successful. And crisis communications don't solve the problem. They just help you avoid the secondary problem, which is public relations problems, which lead to stock price dives and so on. But no one who doesn't know what they're doing will say, we should apologize. They'll all say, oh, no, 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 we, we can't do that because we, you know, there's legalities here. In fact, there's been studies done that show that good Crisis communications include apologies, and it actually reduces your liability. Because if there is a legal liability, they're going to pin it on you regardless. Um, but apologizing does a great deal. And the last thing you do is say, oh, by the way, here's our mitigation. Here's what we're doing to address this, the output of this issue, but also future things we're doing to eliminate that. And if I can, we won't talk a lot about it, but I'll just tell it now while we're getting in a high level. There are all kinds of big words you can use to talk about what you're doing, but you should use small words. You know, we're convening a blue ribbon panel. <laughs> when you say that, people want to throw up a little bit in their mouth. And so you can't say things like that. You know, you could say, I'll be personally involved and I'll be giving you updates every 48 hours until there's a resolution of the immediate crisis. And then there will be regular ongoing whatever about this and this. 
um, too many people just when they get to this last step, they've gotten through the apology and they've addressed what happened and so on. Then they just put out a bunch of corporate speak and it comes across like you were telling you this, but you guys won't follow up because you're going to be chasing the next big crisis. And so that I'm not, I'm not really going to do this stuff and that's bad. All right, let's, let's get right to it. So I love the fact that, and it's counterintuitive to a lot of people that you got to get all the facts first before you communicate. Yeah, people, it's a race to the microphones. There's a joke about that. There are jokes about, cynical jokes about people in Washington and London and Paris and Ottawa and Canberra and so on. We're in Mexico City. We're, to say, the most dangerous place in that city is between this person and a microphone or a camera because they want to profit off of a crisis. But that's not what leaders do. Leaders respond in a responsible way to the crisis. But first, before we get into getting the facts and communicating them, which are our first two steps, we wanted to share some thoughts about your role, some rules about how to behave generally. If this is your first crisis leadership or crisis team experience, for now, just to help you hear the guidance and put yourself in a situation and see how it will hit you. We're assuming that you're the spokesperson for your company or your division. Something has happened, something that could in fact become a crisis. Um, your engine component caused a fatal crash. Your subcontractor cut some corners and it led to a tragedy. Your product ingredients had suddenly been determined to be carcinogenic. Your stock is in free fall because of an unscrupulous short seller or maybe even a material event. That's one possibility. Those are all real crises, by the way. I shouldn't say real. Those are crises I've actually been involved in <laughs> as a part of one of the people on the team. And I've actually had to quit from a couple of teams because they weren't following that. You know, I would say, look, this is what you do. And it, you run the playbook. And by the way, if you know the playbook and we all had the playbook and everybody read the playbook not last night or an hour ago, we would be much more creative about addressing this rather than everybody sitting around going, I've never been here before. I wonder what we do next. And twice I had to resign. Mm -hmm. And they were, they thought I was doing like a, a sort of a grandstand play, like, look at me, I'm resigning. But I very quietly went over and said, look, you guys don't need me. I'm not, I'm not going to be useful. You could, you could save your money and your time. And the guy said, oh, that's not good. I, you know, I, he knew that I knew more senior people in the company. I said, yeah, but. I, I can't ethically be on this team and say do X and have you knowingly do Y and then have me have to clean it up and have somebody who outranks you by a couple of levels say, why didn't you stand on somebody's head? Well, you know, I don't work here. Um, I can't, I can't make people do things. It's, this is not marionette tools. So you may not be the spokesperson, by the way, here's another scenario but you're part of a team that's responding to a crisis. And, and look, being chosen to do something like this is a sign that you're smart, that you're trusted. And the only people who get on these teams, assuming you're not in a very narrow role, like this is a layoff and you're, you're in employee relations and you're the person who's in charge of communications, employee relations, that's a different story. But if you're a general manager, if you're an executive and you're on the team, a broad team with general experience, the assumption is you will be the actual speaker someday and they don't want your first crisis team to be the one where you're speaking. Okay. 
And here's the other thing that so many people miss. Because I go on this thing, I'm on the committee, I feel good, you know, wow, I got named. I probably was a little bit like, I don't want to do that. But then I, somebody says to me, oh my gosh, that's a pretty big deal. Look at everybody else on there. They all outrank you. So you're clearly thought of as somebody who's going to be useful. Here's what people do. They say, well, I'm just, you know, because I don't know what I'm doing, I don't want to do anything wrong. So therefore, I'm going to do nothing. And this is just a training opportunity for me. I'm supposed to look, listen, learn, so on, right? Yeah, bad mistake. Yeah, very, very bad yeah. mistake. If, if you're on that team, you're expected to speak up. You're expected to be part of that team, right? Yeah. Or, and the worst thing is you don't, and then you wonder why you're never invited again. <laughs> it's like, well, that's why. Yeah, there's a rule. If you're at the table, by definition, if the, the seat you're in is not purely a function of your role, like you're a team member and your boss called a staff meeting, well, of course, in that case, you would be in the staff meeting, right? You're there because of your role. If you're somewhere sitting in a seat that is not a function of your role within the hierarchy, there is an assumption that goes with that seat. And that is that you are expected to communicate, to contribute, to speak up. You don't get to sit at the table and not talk. This is one of the weaknesses of a lot of more reserved, quiet, more analytical, non-communicative executives, uh, junior, junior executives, first-time executives. That's hard. If you're, have, high, if you're, high, if you're reserved, you're high C, yeah. you're high S or whatever, that, and you're a, new, a newer exec, I, I guarantee you, unless you're working on it, this is yeah. one of your problems. Yeah. And look, it's, it's, uh, people say, well, I don't want to be wrong. And, and you know, mm. I tell you, you cannot be a leader and make your decision on the elimination of wrongness. You will get least common denominator outputs. You'll never be wrong and you will also never be right. And you're expected to speak up and you may not know, but some, but think of it this way. You could be at the table. And somebody could say, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I said, I, you know, you might say, hey, guys, I'm new, but I, I'm just going to tell you, that sounds like corporate speak to me. And this happened a year and a half ago over at XYZ, our competitor, and they got savaged for it. They sent a faceless corporate lawyer out, and he read something, and he did it well, actually, but it was full of big, fancy weasel words, and they, they killed him for it. And their stock is still not completely recovered. On the other hand, there are all kinds of scenarios where some person stands up and said, this is what happened, and we're sorry, and here's what we're doing. And it's just normal language, and people love them for it. There's no hiding. When you talk in that kind of language, it's, it's like, well, right? That may be your value on the team, is that you can smell the stuff that somebody's trying to shovel. And you're like, nah. Guys, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I'll tell you, that just smells to me. We are not going to impress anybody. We're going to look like masterful, smooth-talking cover-up artists. Yeah. I, the worst the worst I thing know. I ever saw happen was something like, something like this, a crisis, a minor crisis, but a crisis. Nonetheless, the individual I'm thinking about, I'll share with you who it was later, Okay, <laughs> uh, was, was at the table. He had a seat at the table. Didn't say anything. Very, very little. He said, he said a little bit. Very little. Um, things went south in a bad way. And then, and then three weeks later, he had the gall to say, oh, I knew it. I knew it wouldn't work when I heard it. It's like, oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> and, and it got out. I mean, that he, he had shared that. 
he thought incompetence was somebody and that got out and oh my yeah. lord that was the end i mean that was that was the beginning of the end for the person so exactly yeah so yeah it like like mike said newer exec you could su- you could assume that other people at the table have done this before whatever you do don't assume that please okay if all of the others had done this before and had all the expertise they need for this particular situation they wouldn't need you but you're there and therefore you're expected to make suggestions take deliverables run stuff down reach out to certain people and also to communicate openly when you're at the table because you're there literally it's a rule because you're there there's an assumption that you will have ideas and be an active part of the team um this is not some sort of learning experience so you'll know what to do next time you 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 don't need to try to dominate the meeting this is not a chance to be on stage but if you walk out without speaking you won't be invited back yeah and, and don't assume that that everybody on the team other than you has done it before and therefore you don't need to say anything right oh yeah well that's what everybody that's what all managers think we look around at a bunch of the managers and say well they all look fine yeah, but they're just like you. They don't know what they're doing either. They don't. In fact, if you're a manager, if you're an executive person, they're probably looking at you and think, you know everything. And yet there are some of you listening right now that sit in meetings with more senior people and you think she knows and he knows and he knows everything. Yeah. And they don't. They don't. So folks, putting this a little differently, the executive who says to herself, well, everything was going reasonably well. They didn't need my input is missing the point of your attendance. And like highly likely that with this guidance in your pocket, it's not rocket science. It's not hidden. You could go do this research. You could talk to a bunch of people who had done it and been there and put this together and see what worked and what didn't work. You would be able to contribute and you would know a great deal more than the majority of people there. There are one or two people who this may be their only job, but if you go armed with this, You'll be in good shape. You'll be in good shape. Now, look, if your organization has hired a communication consultant, that happens. Okay. But there are a couple of things to consider and people aren't, they don't think precisely about this and it gets people in trouble. First, most communications consultants are only thinking about communications. They don't know anything about internal organizational stuff. They think if they're on a committee, a response committee or a crisis team, they think that they can call people five levels down and give loud orders on the phone. There's those who do that. Or they think that they can come to the meeting that is six people, or let's not, nah, probably 10 people. There are 10 people to the meeting, and all of the other nine are executives, some of whom have specific knowledge. And they come for a seat at the table, and they have seven people come with them. Oh no, this is my team. I need them here so they so I don't have to do a full download. It's like, dude, this is not a retinue moment. All right. This is not, you don't get your entourage here. That's not, that's not how this works. That said, some of them are great, by the way. If you get a chance to talk to them, right? Don't hesitate to ask questions. Um, if you don't get the sense that they understand that the first rule is not communicate, but rather get out, get all the facts first. They will then recommend going to communicating immediately, and this is a mistake. Facts first, then communication, because folks, if you're wondering why, it's I think I said it, but I'll just say it again, because you don't want to be contradicted. 
The single most important thing when you communicate is to be reputable, is to have high probity, to be perceived as competent. Your confidence is not because you have a long track record of success. Your confidence comes from your competence about the knowledge required to speak truthfully, candidly, and completely for the organization about this event. And if you don't have all the facts and then you communicate and then somebody else says, what about this? What about that? Which essentially contradicts what you say. You're now A, on your heels and B, you might as well not get in front of the, mi the microphone ever again, because all they're going to do is look for holes. If your first communications are complete and solid, and in some cases admits it, ad admitting of, of things that are you're known that weren't flattering, you can get a pass for the rest of the time. It'll become not news. And gosh, when it comes to crisis, the first thing we hope for, it's not in our plan because we don't control it, but the first thing we hope for is to not be news, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't be credible. that. Can't walk away without any credibility. Yeah, yeah. Now, if they are a crisis expert, notice we changed there, but most people missed it. We said communications consultant a minute ago, and we were talking about a crisis. We said, oh, this is a crisis person. No. There are all kinds of executives and general counsels and lawyers and other HR people who say, well, we need a communication person. Okay, yes. But if, the if, if, if people walk around saying it's all about communication, it is not. It is all about competence, and the first step is getting the facts. And so you may have a communications person that may attempt to drive this team you're on to communicate first. And by the way, this is probably not fair to them, and I don't mean it to be a broad brush application of a pejorative, but they probably think if this goes well, it makes their career, okay? Whereas you're hoping just to get out of there with a tamping down of the fire. We want it to go from four-alarm fire to embers that have been banked. Yes, it still exists, but we're going to solve it. And that's if somebody's a communication consultant. Now we're talking about a crisis consultant, an expert. By all means, defer to a crisis expert. Again, don't hesitate to ask them about their experience and ask them, hey, what can I do to be a good team member? I think there's a habit, and I, I could be wrong, but after 30 years, I've decided I'm going to trust my gut a lot more, particularly, and share those things with the exec tools, more exec tools listeners more often. There is this belief among far too many executives that you can't ask questions for fear that people will then think you didn't know the answer. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the thing. Here's the, the, the jujitsu of that. They don't know the answer either. Okay? You just admitted you don't know the answer, and suddenly they're going to have a conversion to the true faith, which is, oh, my gosh. That person was so self-confident as opposed to afraid of what he or she didn't know. They were willing to ask. And maybe a couple of the jerks over there will snigger that they that you, right, were willing to admit it. But the more senior people will be like, yeah, if you don't know that, let's tell you. And I'm sorry, I, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. Somebody's like, yeah, okay, this guy hasn't been there. You just want to take that guy out and go, you mm -hmm. knew? Yeah, you didn't know either, buddy, but you're so afraid that you, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And again, if somebody says to you, it's all about communication, say no, 
Getting the facts first is what matters more than anything else. If you get the first step right, you can almost mess up the others. If you don't do this first step, you could be perfect on everything else and you're going to be on your heels the whole time. You'll be amazed when you're on one of these things, how quickly everybody around you, whether it's your leadership team, people who report to you because you're a GM, or the team you're serving on is just a lowly coffee person, they will accept at face value the first information they get. The raw report, the the reporter's question, which is designed to be almost deceitfully barbed against you, right? The anonymous accusation, the paraphrasing of unsealed legal documents or rumors from the courthouse about sealed legal documents. Folks, do not accept what other people accept. And this is where this first step really starts to get juicy because you're going to go find out. And... The problem of what people see in these crises situations, they see, oh, people talking and blah, 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 blah. This guy says this and she says that and it's back and forth and the reporters are running between them and it's like a tennis match and look at the drama. Well, of course, the real job, nobody's real job is getting done. That's very different than a corporate crisis situation because if you're a general manager, you may have 250 people in your organization. They all work for you. Mike and I were talking about this before we started, we hit the record button. This is a moment where we want you to be as persuasive as possible. We want you to use as much expertise as you have, but now is the time to step on the gas of your role power. Reach down five levels in the organization and find the smartest guy who knows the thing that only he knows and say, I want you in my office 15 minutes. I want to hear it directly from you. Why? Just get up here and then hang up the phone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, you tell six of your managers, I want you to call him, you to call her, you to call her, you to call him and him. And I want reports back in 15 minutes. You text my assistant and I want reports back from each of you on X and Y and Z. Go. This is where the unitary nature of the executive, the energy in the executive comes out and you say, I can mobilize all these people. Whereas in Washington or in other other capitals, they don't do that. They, yeah, much harder. Power doesn't work that way. Much, much, much yeah, harder. They all work for you. You can go to any level you need to. Yeah. And here's what happens. The reason people are seen to be on their heels when they're, when they're briefing is they didn't get the information or they accepted information. We don't accept information. We go get it. We seek information. What you're accepting is most likely not factual. And if somebody's putting it to you, they intend it to be dramatic. Okay. If there is drama... Almost by definition, the motivation behind that drama is counterproductive to you. And you need to be able to separate the fact from the question. Okay. In most crisis moments, there are internal actions involved. What somebody in your firm did or what happened because of your firm's products or services. And there are external results. Start talking to people about what people in the firm or products did or didn't do and what the results were rather than the incident, if in fact that's what it is. You'll likely find that the story people are believing is about external results and not about internal actions. And of course, internal actions is what we're responsible for. Yes, we're responsible for external results as well, but don't only talk about external results when in fact internal actions may play a big role in what, why things happen the way they did. So find out who did what. Yeah. This is not the time for people explain to you what happened in the passive voice. Yes. Who said that? 
Uh, I don't know. Go find out. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Go find out. Don't do anything else. Don't eat. Don't go home. Come back to this room when you found out. And by the way, now. Or yeah, not a, and not a characterization. Like, no. Yeah, what specifically, no. what exact words did she say? Can we now have a five-part tangent podcast <laughs> where this now becomes 10 parts, and I talk about the number of times in the last 25 years I have interrupted people. And I know I can be a little rough around the edges at times. I'm like, I don't, you keep talking about what was said. Who said what words to whom when? Well, we talked about, we, no, who said what words? Who? Which person spoke out loud and what did they say and to whom? And then what did that person say? Well, that's not really how I remember conversations. Okay, fine. Next person. Is there somebody here who, who there who remembered who actually said what? And by the way, actually, people are pretty good at this if you keep pushing them. But also people like saying, well, we were kind of, we kind of couldn't decide. That is like a question that is only in a person's mind. We couldn't decide. Couldn't decide? Any one of you could have decided. It's like, okay, fine. Who said what? To whom? Yeah. When? About what? You need to create a movie, right? Where you're, where yes. you're literally watching people and hearing what they're doing, what they're doing with their hands, what they're doing with their feet, what they're doing with their mouth, what they're saying, who they're saying to. You got to be able to, you need that yeah. level of detail. When we're talking about getting the facts, that's what we mean. Yeah. And I get a chance to mention one of my top five favorite movies of all time, Margin Call and the famous partners meeting in which Jeremy Irons playing the CEO comes in and does just this. Um, and he's not afraid to use direct and assertive role power to find out what he needs to find. Now is not the time to ask or persuade. Now, we're not telling you not to ask and not to persuade. If you can ask and you can persuade while also making it very clear because you have long-term relationships with people that you will brook no compromise, then fine. But if you are a question asker and a thinker and you sit back and you contemplate things and so on, now is not the time. You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. And if you say to me afterwards, well, I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing that. Let me assure you, there's no organization that is comfortable forming a crisis response team. It's not comfortable. The idea that everybody on the committee has to be comfortable when the organization, if it were a human entity, would be by definition uncomfortable is ludicrous. The idea that you are seeking comfort at a time like now is wrong. What you should be seeking is the best outcome from the, for the organization. And you are given role power exactly for times like these. So now's the time to demand. Call whomever you can. Call who you need to. Tell them you want answers five minutes ago. You can be polite about it. There's nothing wrong with that. Tell them to stop whatever they're doing and get you the answers you need today, this minute. You know, look, if you've been a persuasive ethical leader, spend the goodwill you've earned to get the answers from everybody who owes you a favor anywhere. Who did what and when and how and why with deadlines of yesterday. And you not only need to know what happened, you need to know how it happened. You also need to know what happened, how what happened deviated from what should have happened. What was done outside of processes? Okay, he did X. Is that inside process or not? Uh, it's not really clear. Okay, explain that to me. And by the way, have two people next to you writing these things down. What metrics were not met? What shortcuts did we take? Right? I'm not going to get anybody in trouble. I need to know because the wolves are at the door. And it sounds old-fashioned and manager tools funny, but who did what by when? 
Now, the reason for this aggressive, and I would say, we usually say assertive, but in this case, we're saying aggressive, tracking down of details and facts is a couple of things. You cannot assess risk, assess risk without knowing the whole story. And there is enough motivation in crises for the whole story not to be told. One of my favorite poems is Robert Frost. I think it's called The Secret. And I think, I always get this wrong, we sit in a circle and suppose, and the secret sits in the middle and knows. There are people out there who know stuff, and they may not tell you because it doesn't benefit them to tell you. But you are now the organization, and there may be a bifurcation between what's good for that person and what's good for the organization. And if you're on one of these crises teams, you represent the organization and not you and not your division. Second, you can't formulate a reasonable, complete communication strategy, which is just started in step two, without understanding the scope of the failure of the issue and the impacts of it. Now, look, in some cases, a simple apology might be all that's required. But whether you decide to get lawyers involved, if they're not already, can only be justified by knowing the scope of the risk or the failure. Now, you could say to yourself after listening for 15 minutes, okay, Call the GC. I need somebody here from an external counsel or internal because we need them in this. I just, I can sense it. I can smell it. I can feel it. It's time. But maybe not. Maybe you don't know enough. But step one is digging, no matter what. Getting all the facts before communicating really boils down to a simple principle. If you communicate with incomplete knowledge, anything you say based on incomplete knowledge will be proven later to be incomplete, which is therefore untrue. Because you, the, everyone knows that what people who have done something wrong do is hide things, and all incompleteness will be seen to have a motivation of turpitude as opposed to incompetence, and it will forever damage your credibility in future communications about this crisis, the incident itself. And yeah. people on the team will say, you need speed. Speed's super Oh, important. yeah, absolutely. And they're right. But, Okay but you don't put the cart before the horse. Speed that's based on incomplete knowledge will become a later drag. You'll start fast, and then you won't be able to get in a second gear, and you'll just be sacrificed on the public relations altar. Do not sacrifice your reputation for honesty and candor in the interest of speed. It always fails. If you're forced to communicate before you know all the facts, provide a generic response that you're aware of the issue and are working diligently, with all deliberate speed. That's what you do. Excellent. All right, dude. That was awesome. <laughs> We're long. And we have a lot more to talk about. So I recommend we stop here and totally. finish yeah. this up uh, next time. Yeah, we got 35 minutes probably in the can already, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Have a great one. Thank you.